Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Close Your Sync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Norman. Set in New Orleans February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's Closure, S-Y-N-C, dot com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. The keynote speakers have been chosen. This year, Lambda Days will be opened by Philip Wadler. Mary Sheeran will open day two, and the conference will end on a high note with a talk by Feline Hermans. Both the early, early bird and early bird tickets sold out way ahead of time. The regular sale is on, so make sure you to secure your spot soon. Still a student? Contact them regarding discounts and volunteering options. Lambda Days has a special regress for all you ladies of Lambda. They want to let you know that last year way too few of you decided to join them, so this year they're having a special deal for you. For more information and to register, visit www.lambdadays.org. And if your company is interested in supporting Lambda Days, please contact sponsorship at lambdadays.org. Lambda Days welcomes organizations passionate about the community to tailor how they want to present their brand to Lambda Days' amazing audience. Bob 2018 is in Berlin on February 23rd of 2018. Bob is a developer conference on what's best in software development. Naturally, it has a strong focus on functional programming. For more information and to register, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. And Bob is immediately followed by Closure D on February 24th, also in Berlin. More information on Closure D can be found at closured.de. And cross-registration discounts for Bob and Closure D are available. Lambda Squared has been announced. Lambda Squared is a single-day, single-track functional programming conference held in Knoxville, Tennessee on March 30th of 2018. Early bird tickets are on sale for $50 until January 7th. For more information and to register, visit www.lambda-square.com. Bonatic Party is having a five days long Haskell Summer School in Poznan, Poland. They will have two tracks, one for programmers that aren't experienced in Haskell and would like to learn it from the basic concepts. The other track is for people already familiar with the language and will present a selection of talks and workshops on a variety of topics. Their speakers include Julie Moronuki, who wrote Haskell Programming from First Principles, Chris Martin, the co-author of an upcoming Joy of Haskell, GHC contributor Christoph Gogolewski, Carter Schwonwald, Marcin Chamultuski, and Michał Kavalitz. They have an open call for speakers and are looking for people who want to lead a series of lectures or workshops. Check them out at monadic.party. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, Please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support.
Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Scott Nimrod. Scott, welcome back to the show. It's been about a year and a half I was looking, so what have you been up to in the meantime? I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, still going full throttle in my campaign to learn functional programming, so I feel a little bit better about where I'm at in my campaign. I've been digging deeper into F-sharp. It's starting to come more naturally to me. I still consider myself a junior, you know. In addition to that, I've also been diving deep into Elm and functional programming. And not just with F-sharp at home, but also had some opportunities to apply it in the industry. So that's been pretty much it. Also working on open source projects that are functional programming with Elm and F-sharp. So I've been really busy and really focused. And for context, last time we talked, that was you had pretty much just wrapped up your Lego Mindstorms and run F-Sharp on it. You were talking about that as a great project, taking advantage of Stack Overflow and finding the people to help answer your questions or even just answer your own questions there to keep them documented. So we were talking about that. And you said you've been doing more F-Sharp on the side and you even started finding some gigs where you're doing F-Sharp for pay. So what was that transition like for you? Well, if you're talking about consulting work or, or contract work, one was the actual F-sharp shop where the work was on the back end. And it was really interesting. This is where I actually first heard about sagas in this case. It, I'm not an expert on like, I'm not sure if it's called saga-based architecture, but basically dealing with long-running workflows and leveraging event sourcing. So basically, you would have an order come in and the various activities and also events that would transpire as a result of that order coming in, such as syncing with the warehouse and accounting, etc. And so working within that environment, I ended up picking up a book that was pretty thick. It was Java-based, or I think Scala-based that actually went into detail about what Saga-based architecture really is, and it was very helpful. And now I'm aware of alternative tools to building systems, especially on, a, on the back end. So that was with one shop that was primarily focused on using F-sharp on the server side. And also, I worked as a software developer coach in addition with helping out the team with quality issues. So actually rolling up my sleeves and doing some refactoring work on their code base, which was only like a year old, but was already extremely legacy. And so I took advantage of the opportunity to do some F-sharp work there where it made sense, where you had severely duplicated classes and being able to leverage some static analysis tools, especially within Visual Studio Enterprise, such as code clones, and being able to identify duplicate code scattered throughout the code base and basically rewrite those specific methods into functions using F-sharp. And so that was, I don't know, it felt good. And also leveraging F-sharp to do unit tests as well. Not necessarily property-based tests, but still doing example-based tests, but writing it using FS unit. 
And so wherever I can squeeze in functional programming and still be pragmatic with it, I go full throttle. So what was the difference when you were playing with F-sharp, learning it, experimenting with it, trying to get a hold of this paradigm that, if I remember right, you said you wanted to find something that would help set you apart at least a little bit, and along with that, expose your ideas to come back and influence your work. When you take learning F-sharp for fun and exposure and to uh, kind of crib on Scott Voloshin's blog title, um, taking it to now actually doing it for profit, and therefore using it in anger and finding all those sharp edges, I guess, of F-sharp or whatever language as you apply it day-to-day and have to get stuff done, what was that transition from F-sharp for fun, F-sharp for a learning experience, to when you started using these and getting into the F-sharp shop and finding the places where maybe your experience wasn't as strong as it was, or even those places where your experience was stronger than you thought it was. And you're like, oh, I didn't realize I understood this as well. What was that transition to playing with it on the side, then using it day to day for some good period of time? Well, it was a little bit of both. I think I always suffer from imposter syndrome, which is why I'm really, really hard on myself. And I don't really give myself enough credit that maybe I I deserve. So... When walking on to uh, F-sharp shop, I wasn't really that far behind. I was actually probably second to third most knowledgeable about the F-sharp programming language, believe it or not. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but um, the architect there was just mind-blowing amazing when it came to actually writing code. I didn't know architects wrote code, but this one, he was actually very hands-on and one of the few architects that I actually develop a, a deep respect for when it comes to actually walking the walk. So to answer your question, I would say that I felt like it was pretty natural. I can appreciate when you bring in a different type of paradigm, you're also bringing in the ecosystem with you and different techniques as well. And what I mean by that is as much as I had something to learn from them as F-sharp in the real world with a billion-dollar business, there was also some things that they may not have been aware about that I actually introduced to them. And, you know, minor things. So, for example, in unit tests, they were still doing, I'm not sure if it's called Pascal casing or Camel casing, but even though they were using... FS unit, they weren't really taking advantage of how expressive your, your, your test names could be. So, for example, you could put in, I'm not sure if the character is tilde tilde, but you could basically create functions in which the names are wrapped in tilde characters, I'm not sure, or backtick characters, I'm not sure what the, the actual name is, and you can have spaces in it. So you could write out like a sentence in which the words are spaced out. And it's a lot more legible. So again, like that's something that's very minor, very simple, that they didn't know about that I kind of introduced as an outsider. What was also interesting is this shop, as I mentioned, they introduced me to sagas in which, from my understanding, uh, a saga is like a journey. It's 
in this case, a workflow that could take a significant amount of time to complete. And so it was interesting how they derived that architecture and how they were programming to that architecture. So that was something that I wasn't familiar with, but I had no choice but to pick up a general understanding of it. And there's a book, I can't think of the actual author. I think it's like Gerald or Harold. There's a book that's, I think, based in Scala that discusses sagas, and it's thoroughly written, and I highly recommend it. Unfortunately, I can't think of the actual name of the book, but that's a short answer. And part of the reason I'm wondering is, because I've been caught in that trap myself, is you get the confidence that you might know a language, but you only half internalize it because you might be learning it on your own. And even if you're asking questions, the style and the power of the language doesn't necessarily become apparent until you have some other people pointed out to you. As you mentioned, you pointed out the, or being able to name functions with backticks around it so you can have spaces or the tilde characters or whatever that was. But finding some of those things that saying, well, I thought I understood this, but if you've got a good architect and you've got another couple of good people in front of you, the code reviews and the guidance, were there any things that really stood out? whether or not it's specific to F-sharp or just more ways of thinking functionally that you can recall? I would say their focus of using, in this case, they had created what they called a, a saga bus. And again, I, this was brand new to me. I, I never knew about, I never heard of that type of architecture. Sure, I heard about event sourcing, but I never really heard the term saga. And so that was... It was just something that was different that now I have a deeper appreciation for. And the reason why that is relevant is because it was, these are enterprise developers. That might be an overloaded term, but they're working on software that basically the business depends on, in which there's accounting, warehouse, a whole bunch of other departments that are are all involved based on some type of trigger, some type of catalyst, some type of event that occurs with someone making an order or someone returning a purchase, etc. And so I found it interesting how they leveraged F-sharp to basically support a workflow that needed to be or that was required to be audited. And so what I mean by that is there's no erasing of history. So within SQL, there is no update, and you completely wipe out the data that was there in which there's no way to retrieve past history of what led up to that state in the database. So when they introduced Sagas to me, then I kind of had a better understanding of you know what Rachel Reese was talking about in regards to event sourcing and why this type of architecture can be valuable based on the context of actually doing real-world business and tracking how things got to a certain point. And when things do occur, when anomalies occur, being able to replay those events to get back to a certain state, that was very, I don't know, awe-inspiring to me. And so that's something that I will basically take with me whenever I'm in an environment where the business really needs to hold on to every single event that led to the state that they're in with a customer or with an invoice or anything, then that's something that I would definitely pull out of my toolbox. 
And so you make a lot of good progress here, it feels like. You've started to solidify your confidence. You said you kind of suffer the imposter syndrome where you don't gauge yourself as competent as you really are. You've been having conversations with others. I know you did your video podcast, video cast, Google Hangout conversations with people. I'm trying to remember if you started that a little before we did our first conversation or right around the time, but you've been doing that some more. You've started working on some other side projects. Let's dig into some of these other things that you've found as you've continued on besides just applying it in a day-to-day job in a more enterprise scheme. So what else have you been up to, even if it's some of those things I mentioned, and what are some of those takeaways you've found in the meantime that have helped strengthen either your confidence or your understanding as you're going on your journey of learning F-sharp, getting better at F-sharp, and exploring the broader functional world? Because I know talking beforehand, you've also picked up at least one other language. So what's this path been looking like outside of just being able to manage and work F-sharp in the job as well? So something that has really helped me out, and I actually gained it from one of your past episodes. I'm not sure who the guest was, but when I started learning functional programming as an object-oriented programmer, it was really difficult. There were a lot of habits that needed to be broken, but it was the only way that I knew how to build software. And so it was very hard to force my brain to write code a different way. So what do I mean by that? I would struggle with, well, how do I write a for loop, you know, in functional programming? And I would still think in in those type of terms, like for loop. And so on one of your shows, you had a developer that I believe was creating instructional content, maybe videos, in which he explained that in functional programming, everything can be reduced down to map, filter, reduce. And I remember him, I remember those words, and that really resonated with me. Now, whenever I'm writing functional code, whenever I do begin to bang my head on the wall, I always remember, okay, well, what I'm trying to do ultimately can be one of three different things. It can either be a map, a filter, or a reduce. More likely, within there's a library within F-sharp or within Elm that is going to have a function that builds on top of one of these three building blocks. And that helped me out tremendously. So whenever I, I'm trying to figure out the translation of how to do something in idiomatic FP, or should I say F-sharp, I always think about those three building blocks. And usually things just become correct. I'm able to keep progressing. So that helped me out significantly in regards to me continuing to write F-sharp code or Elm code. In addition to that, you asked me about, I'm sorry, can you repeat the other part of your question? I was more just some of those things you've been up to working on other side projects, your your Google Hangout videos, talking with other people. It was just general updates about those and then just other various lessons learned that you've taken away either from those or just 
other other things that you've come across that have helped solidify your knowledge that you think is worth sharing to the audience as they're on whatever level they are at. So the other part is I really, really want to master this way of building software. And so in order to go full throttle, uh, I decided to start an open source organization to basically help me get further within this campaign. And so it was, I hope I don't forget names, but it was basically Odie, who you had on your show, Pablo Rivera. He was recently on Developer on Fire. Adam, don't know his last name. He has a website. I think it's called F-Sharp for C-Sharp developers or something to that aspect. His name is Adam Wright. He was part of the Lambda Cartel and also Mitchell Tilbrook, which I think you had on your show out of Australia. So I feel like I'm missing somebody. But we had came together and with the intent of building an application that used only functional programming languages, in this case, Elm and F-sharp. And with that said, also consider frameworks that were focused on or associated to functional programming, such as FSUnit and also Giraffe, which we use for web services. And so that resulted in Nikeza being on GitHub, which is an open source project, a number of YouTube videos and podcasts in which we basically record design decisions and reasons why we should go with one framework versus another and why we chose .NET Core, etc. And so that was pretty helpful. And we were, I think it was a really good example of collaboration, something that I haven't really experienced a lot in work, in actual work, like working a nine to five, but I can really appreciate on an open source project where everybody's voice is heard. So that, that's something that I took advantage of. And so Nikeza was, I mean, it, it's still in development, but it's essentially a .NET Core web application right now. I'm going to begin the iOS and Android clients probably in another month, as time permits. But Nikeza is essentially Zulu for ToGive. Right now, it's a web application in which the front end is written in Elm. The back end is written in F-sharp. And the intent of the application <laughs> has several use cases. For me, one of my motivations for building it was that I felt like the resume that I had wasn't really working out for me. I kept on getting passed over for jobs with employers or, or staffing agencies claiming that I didn't have a specific skill set or I didn't have experience. And some of these topics that they said I didn't have experience in, I had actually wrote blog posts on or recorded videos on, you know, such as Windows Presentation Foundation and its model view view model pattern. And so that started coming up more and more where people started passing on me for jobs that I believe that was more than qualified to do. And so one of the features of Nikeza is, and it's, it's pretty primitive right now based on the current implementation, is to basically enable 
people to showcase their portfolio. So again, the resume is a, a broke tool where all you have to do is know how to play the game and you just sprinkle a whole bunch of buzzwords on the document and there will be algorithms that will look for those buzzwords and, and notify HR or any type of gatekeeper, whether you're a candidate that's worth a technical interview or a technical screen or not. And for me, that wasn't really working out. So to make a long story short, with Nikesa, one of the problems that I've been working on solving is to provide a platform where you can take your content, whether it's YouTube videos, whether it's WordPress or Medium.com, even Stack Overflow answers, podcast shows. I've been a podcast guest on several shows. Basically, taking your professional web footprint and being able to put that on a platform so that the proof is in the pudding and that people can really understand the topics that you specialize in. And it's not you just writing it down on your resume, but it's more of you having content that people can examine so that they can make more informed decisions on hiring you or not. So that was one of the features of, or is one of the features of Nikesa. The other features of Nikesa, as I kind of touched on, is it's essentially a, an aggregator of data. So as a user, you basically identify your data sources, right? A data source is essentially a platform that you have content on. So you can say, hey, I want to streamline my professional web footprint. And my web footprint is basically on these platforms. It's on Stack Overflow. It's on WordPress because I maintain a technical blog. It's on YouTube. And if I'm a podcast host, then I'm just going to provide the URL of my podcast feed. And Nikesa will basically take that and they'll spit out all the links and it'll organize those links into specific buckets, aka categories, videos, podcasts, answers to questions, and articles. And it will run a periodic synchronization task so that right now I configured it for to run every three hours. It will go through all of the platforms that you have content on and it'll look for new updates. And as it finds new updates, it'll go ahead and post that on the website. So all the recent links will basically bubble your profile to the top of the website for users to observe. And when you actually log into the application, you can view your, your followers, you can maintain your subscriptions in which it's people that you follow. And it's just a way of staying up to date with domain experts. Because I'm a software developer, right now, if you go to the web application or website, is pretty much focused on software development, but it's really open to, to any type of expertise. I just happen to be a software developer, so the majority of the profiles that I created are podcast shows or, for example, Mark Seaman or Tomas Petracek, people that I have a deep respect for. And so right now, it's if you were to go to that website, you will basically see a tool that I built for myself and the people and the podcast shows that I follow. And so you're picking this up. You've had some of these discussions. When you start fleshing out this idea of, well, what if I could get all my stuff in one place for me to follow all along? 
and you go through these conversations with the other people and you sit down to start to build this, what were some of those things that you learned from doing this process? Whether it was other features of F-Sharp, design thinking, or just anything in general as you were sitting down and working through this and tackling this problem? Well, the first thing that really jumps out, and I'll just be honest, is you can find or attract the most motivated or brilliant minds. But what I've learned is that just because people are very knowledgeable doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to use their time to work on what you believe is valuable. So in my personal experience, I kind of learned to appreciate the domain knowledge or wisdom that people may have. And so that could be very helpful. They could help you get a better understanding of options that are available when you're solving problems. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to also roll up their sleeves and actually like crank out code right next to you. And so that was my experience with trying to spearhead uh, open source organization is everybody's motivated at first because it's a clean slate. It's fresh. There is no legacy. Everything is what we create of it, right? But then when it comes down to actually writing code and actually solving the problem and banging your head against the wall to try to troubleshoot things, that's where like human behavior may change. And so with open source, I think open source is recognized for attracting motivated minds in which it's more than money. It's personal, right? That's my viewpoint of open source projects is it's personal. And people want to build something where they may not have the opportunity to build it at their nine-to-five job that's severely standardized and very process-oriented where there's, there's not much room or bandwidth for innovation and experiments. But with an open source, on a case-by-case basis, you have an opportunity to really dig in deep with what you know so far in regards to software development, and you get to test out ideas, especially if, if you're the one that is actually managing or spearheading the actual open source project. So to answer your question, that was the very first thing that I recognized was not necessarily related to programming, but really the human factor. That just because people are brilliant doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to consistently contribute actual code. And so that was something that I'd never really considered. In addition to that, there were decisions that were made that listeners to the show can actually examine on our YouTube videos about why we chose .NET Core, why we chose SQL Server, why we chose Giraffe, which is a framework that supports idiomatic F-sharp syntax for building web services. And so I wasn't familiar with Giraffe. I heard of .NET Core, but I didn't really understand the value. Honestly, (laughs) I still argue the value of .NET Core for normal .NET developers right? Not to go off on a tangent, but I think .NET Core is really to get other developers that aren't really .NET onto the platform. 
but that's a, a different topic. So to make long story short, working on this open source project and working with developers from Puerto Rico, Australia, Nigeria, Kansas City, it basically made me aware of tools that I wasn't aware of previously and also code reviews. So believe it or not, Mitchell Tilbrook is him and I still get together in which I will actually invite him to do a code review of some functions that I wrote to basically perform synchronization with YouTube or Stack Overflow. And it's still valuable. There's still things I learned about F-sharp that I wasn't really familiar with before. So those are some of the things that, that I captured. So there's a couple places that might be interesting to go, and I'll let you kind of pick and choose which one you want to run with. One is, you touched on it being on .NET Core. Been out of .NET for a while doing day-to-day stuff and haven't really done much on the side with it since .NET Core was announced. But my understanding of .NET Core is that it now allows you to go run your F-sharp if the integration's good enough, and you can talk about that on a MacBook or a Linux machine. So that's one avenue we could explore. The other one is for your front end, you're using Elm. So I guess pick which one of those might be interesting to talk about from a perspective of what you learned, what you found valuable, what you found interesting in either of those topics, or if there's something else there that you might want to cover that that I don't even realize there. I'll try to do both. With .NET Core, the decision why we use .NET Core was because even though I'm a, a .NET developer, there were developers that weren't really familiar with SQL Server. They didn't use Visual Studio. They had MacBooks. And so my understanding, right, because I'm still a .NET developer, so I don't have the type of appreciation for .NET Core as they did based on the problem that we were solving, is with .NET Core, it also supports Docker. And so my understanding is because they weren't using Visual Studio and they weren't using SQL Server, .NET Core was the tool or platform that enabled developers that don't use Visual Studio tools to build .NET applications, okay? So there is significant investment on the CASA on building out the Docker functionality, for lack of a better term, because I don't, I, to this day, I still don't fully understand Docker because that's not a problem that I had to face being a .NET developer and using the tools that Visual Studio provides. So in addition to SQL Server, but for, for Mitchell and Pablo, members of Lambda Cartel, my understanding is that .NET Core and Docker was required in order to write F-sharp and leverage SQL Server. So those were the motivating factors for using .NET Core. In regards to F-sharp, F-sharp is, and this is coming from me, right? So this may not be truth, it may not be doctrine, but I still feel till this day, and we had several podcast shows on the Lambda Cartel about this. Coming from me, F-sharp is a redheaded stepchild of the .NET family of languages. Okay, it's backed by Microsoft, 
but it's really being carried by the community of F-sharp developers. In addition to that, F-sharp, when I say it's a redheaded stepchild, it never received the, and, and I understand why, but it never received the same amount of love that C-sharp has received, or even Visual Basic.net. I'm not sure if VB.net has been deprecated yet, but with F-sharp, when I say that it hasn't received the same amount of love, the tooling for F-sharp isn't as mature as it is obviously for C-sharp. And I discussed this on .NET Rocks when I was on that show, in which you really don't have static analysis tools for F-sharp as you do for C-sharp. So for example, within Visual Studio Enterprise, you really can't take advantage of the code metrics feature or even code map, where you can spit out a UML diagram of your solution from namespace to, in this case, instead of classes, we have modules to actual functions and get the maintainability index for it and cyclomatic complexity and all that stuff. Those features don't exist in Visual Studio for F-sharp. So that's just F-sharp. In regards to .NET Core, you still don't have the tooling. So not only does F-sharp not have the tooling just running on .NET that you would expect coming from a C-sharp background or a C-sharp paradigm or ecosystem, but because it's .NET Core, you also don't have the type of tools that you're used to. So what I mean by that is for the longest, up until, up until two weeks ago, I had two IDEs running. I had Visual Studio Code with the Ionide plugin as my F-sharp editor. And then to actually run my server code, I would use Visual Studio. And so, again, I would have two different IDEs up because for whatever reason, I didn't know how to launch my server instance in Visual Studio Code's Ionide. But... It was a beautiful experience of writing F-sharp because the tooling is there in INI. Not necessarily static analysis that I'm aware of, but I mean, just basic things such as IntelliSense and looking at your function signature without having to write a comment that shows your function signature, right? This is something that I believe Visual Studio doesn't have, but INI does have where you can just look at the function and it kind of has similar to code lens in Visual Studio, your function signature. So you can see what the inputs are and what the output is of that function. You can actually go to the definition of a function that is being called by a client and go to the actual implementation details of that function within Ionide, which within Visual Studio, I kind of struggled with. So to make a long story short, the combination of F-sharp doesn't have the tooling that C-sharp has that we've come to love, but also within .NET Core, you still don't have that type of tooling. So for example, when basically writing uh, queries or interacting with an actual database, hence SQL Server, people would recommend to use type providers. There's a SQL type provider, right? And so within .NET, yeah, that makes sense. I don't need Entity Framework, and I really don't need ADO.NET. I would use the type provider, and it does like magic behind the scenes at compilation time, and things just work. That's my understanding of it. 
However, in .NET Core, well, at the time, the SQL type provider, it wasn't supported. There was a kludgy workaround, but at the time, that just didn't feel right. And so we decided, and it was in the episode that we, we recorded, that we were just going to use ADO.NET, which meant that we would actually write within hard-coded strings SQL statements. And we would basically use that to execute queries and commands when we needed to interact with the database, specifically SQL Server. So those are some of the, the considerations that we made based on the current state of F-sharp within .NET Core. And it is what it is. There is a price to being bleeding edge. And that's what I've learned, especially working within open source. And part of the interest in .NET Core from my side was hearing that the goal was to give you that nice cross-platform story of being able to write it in .NET and then run it on Linux, OS X, Windows machines, and a couple of others potentially that you could now write your apps and get them to work and even get UI client-side apps. And I wasn't sure how you found even just the integration with F-Sharp that if someone decided that they wanted to write a .NET app and do it in F-Sharp, that even if the tooling's not there, that is it a viable option in your view that says, given you might struggle with tooling, that between the choices of C-Sharp and F-Sharp, if you want to put a .NET thing on a, on a MacBook, F-Sharp is a legitimate option to do that now with .NET Core and the way that it integrates and is supported in .NET Core. So I'm not a Mac user, but in my conversations with Pablo and Mitchell, that, yeah, you can still use F-sharp, and it, it still works. And so this is what they were doing on, on their MacBooks. Something that I did not mention is recently, like literally within the past two weeks, there is a Visual Studio 2017 preview 15.6, I believe, where the user experience that I embraced on Visual Studio Code's Ionide plugin, I'm now receiving or observing in Visual Studio, meaning that I now use Visual Studio now, their preview edition, because they made some significant updates to support F-sharp development on .NET Core. Now, again, uh, I emphasize that that's on the preview version of Visual Studio 2017 15.5 or 15.6. However, the Ionide plugin, it's still faster, right? Your IntelliSense, it's just like that. It's just similar to what you would expect in C-sharp if you're writing C-sharp syntax. That's how Ionide is with F-sharp. Within the Visual Studio Preview Edition or version, the IntelliSense is still very slow, but at least you get it. And when I mean slow, I mean I type in a record value and I hit the dot character to basically get the properties of that record. And it may take like five seconds for those properties to be exposed to me so I could choose one. Within Ionide, it's just instant, right? But... Within Visual Studio, I can actually launch an instance of the server. 
However, within Ionite, I think I'm probably the only person that had that issue. But I had that issue, right? And so to make a long story short, I'm now doing development within Visual Studio without having to use Visual Studio Code anymore. But the cost is performance with IntelliSense. And then we've got some time left, so I'd like to hear what you found starting and picking up Elm and using Elm from the front end. Both are ML-ish family languages. What did you find common that was the foundation that you had from F-Sharp? And what were some of those things that you discovered as you were picking up your second functional language or third functional language, whatever it was, and now applying those lessons learned to A, a new language, and B, a slightly new paradigm considering the way that Elm works with the Elm architecture and doing things on the web front end? Right, right. So I made a video approximately four months ago in which I declared or I made my declaration to learn Elm because I felt the need to enter the web development space. And I did not want to interact with JavaScript at all. And so Elm appeared to be the tool that would satisfy my hunger for learning functional programming and at the same time, abstract away the need to write JavaScript code. So there's many similarities between Elm and F-Sharp. Honestly, there's a video on YouTube in which the author of... There's a book called... It's a really good book, too. I'm not sure if I have enough time to search on my Kindle. But one of my favorite books on F-Sharp until... I recently picked up Scott Vlashin's book on F-Sharp. The author of The Book of F-Sharp, the name of the book is The Book of F-Sharp. The author of that book actually has, he actually gave a conference talk that I found on YouTube in which he talks about Elm and the similarities to F-Sharp. And I agree with them. Working with Elm honestly solidified my understanding of functional programming. And also, I believe, solidified my understanding of writing F-sharp code. They are very similar, very similar. However, my understanding is Elm is only client side. And not only that, but Elm is, my understanding, a purely functional programming language, whereas F-sharp is functional first, meaning the programming language encourages you to write idiomatic F-sharp. However, if you want to get work done without having to perform several ceremonies, then you can also do some object-oriented programming as well, which, believe it or not, is very useful. It's very flexible, right? And so F-sharp is a flexible language that I learned to appreciate, especially since I started picking up Elm. Within Elm, because it's, it's purely functional, there are ceremonies that you just have to perform if you want to do any type of I.O. And that may be okay <laughs> for certain developers, but for someone that is still learning functional programming and someone that just has certain deadlines that are personally set, in which I just want to get things done. I have certain milestones. Sometimes I don't want to perform all these ceremonies just to do basic things. 
So what I mean by that is I have a habit when I build software to build software such that the focus is on the domain logic and that the applications that I build can basically run independently of a web server or a database, right? That's the way that I build systems is they're very focused on the actual domain logic and I snap in or plug in the database to it or the web server to it. Within Elm, I use the same approach that I've been using to build systems. I'm using that pattern or that technique. And when it came time to actually snap in web services to my Elm project, I learned very quickly that uh, I had to redo a significant part of my code, meaning that with Elm, you're forced to pull in, uh, in this case, the HTTP module if you want to do any type of, well, in this case, interaction with web services. Whereas before, I just used functions, or shall I say a function signature, as an interface. And so based on the configuration setting, I thought within my own code, I can either do everything in isolation, in which I call a test API, and that test API will just return to me arbitrary data without me having to connect to an actual database or web server. However, when I toggle my configuration to actually point to an actual server, I had to rewrite a lot of the code just because you're forced to use a HTTP module to basically interact with the outside world. And so to make a long story short, there are certain what I say, ceremonies that you must do within Elm that you may take for granted if you come from an object-oriented programming background. As you continue to go down and understand that route, from my more limited experience with Elm, I found that those boundaries are nice, at least, that because you're putting a message or you're raising an event that you're going to react to in an update or something else, or a subscriber that you can kind of stop worrying about the actual HTTP call and you just say, well, I know this is going to invoke it. Did you find something along those lines that the actual interaction with the outside world became different as opposed to some of the impure stuff you might be able to get away with in F sharp because it's still going to respect the C sharp and VB.net and the underlying.net system? So something that that I got hit hard with <laughs> with building out this Nikeza open source project is performance. So again, because I'm a I'm a newbie to Elm and also web development, as a native application developer for building desktop applications with Windows Presentation Foundation, mobile applications with Xamarin. There are certain things, for lack of a better term, that I take for granted. When working with Elm, I quickly observed bottlenecks, performance bottlenecks, where I couldn't just pull in data, (laughs) even if that data didn't need to be used based on the specific context that I was working on or the specific view, aka page, that I'm operating on. And so... This is my understanding, which 
may be incorrect, but with Elm, my understanding is you have immutable records, right? Immutable types, or should I say immutable values? And so with that said, every time you need to modify a property of a value, well, you're going to create a copy of it. Now, I'm sure behind the scenes, there's an optimized way of just changing the property that needs to be changed, and that's it, and preserving everything else. That's my understanding, or at least I hope that's what's being done. However, when building a real application that aggregates data, and again, like this application, for test data, I had pulled in Tomas Petracek and Mark Siemens Stack Overflow answers, and they have thousands of answers, right? And so I quickly observed performance issues with the Elm application that I was building. And I realized that I needed to specify specific pieces of data from the server that I needed, where in object-oriented programming or specifically native application development, I never really had the requirement or felt the need to do. I guess I took that for granted. But when you're basically manipulating pages and you're modifying specific values of certain properties within Elm to render a page and you have thousands of items within your list that you want to, I'm not saying you want to render thousands, but you need to process. And there's certain ceremonies that you can go to the database and write certain queries. To make a long story short, I quickly realized the importance of performance that you just need to account for when doing functional programming based on immutability. And that I had to modify or really refactor my Elm code and also the server, which was written in F-sharp, to give my Elm client exactly the essential data that it needed and nothing more because it was spending so much time basically creating copies of itself to basically render the data that it needed. So I know the way I attempted to explain that was kind of verbose, but I'm still learning functional programming. But to make a long story short, Within Elm, because it's immutable, I found that, in my case, I have to be very careful in what I ask for because it will take a significant amount of time to process because it makes copies of values before it renders it. Well, we're getting close in our time, and I know we're pushing time on your end, so I want to be conscientious of it, and I'm sure we'll have to get you back on in the future to give further updates as you continue to progress with Elm and push further with Nikesa and any other things that's going on, be it more professional work in F-sharp or potentially professional work in Elm or just any other languages that you play with. But being considerate of your time and coming up on the hour time mark as well, and I know it's getting late for you, but what do we need to leave the audience with? Is there other calls to action? Are there other things that you want to announce? I know last time we talked, you didn't get a chance to do too many conferences. Do you happen to have any upcoming conference appearances, speaking or attending? Is there anything that you want to let people know about before we give where people can find you and keep up to date with what you're going on? I guess my call to action would be 
I purposely reached out to you to be a guest on your show because I want to represent someone that's not an expert in functional programming to basically support the notion or the idea that you don't have to be incredibly brilliant. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be an industry expert on Stack Overflow to be a functional programmer. And so hopefully with the way that I responded to your questions and at times struggled to articulate, my message is that, again, it's okay to experiment with functional programming. It's okay. You don't have to have a PhD. You, it's not research intensive. It's a different way of building software. And my objective or my goal is to try to help others understand that, again, you don't have to be an industry expert. You don't have to be so advanced within software development know-how to understand what it means to be a functional programmer and to build software a different type of way in which I would argue with functional programming, one of the aspects of it or characteristics is the code is already inherently testable, regardless of if you decide to write tests for it or not. And so, again, that's one of the main reasons for me wanting to come on your show is to encourage others to try out functional programming and to let them know that they don't have to be brainiacs to do so. And that's pretty much it. In regards to any conferences or events, I'm preparing to publish a blog post on functional programming, specifically with what I've learned with building Nikesa, which is on GitHub. It's open source. But I'm preparing to publish that for the F-sharp Advent of Code calendar. I'm sure I'll butcher that name. But there's an annual event in which I think each day of the month, there's a blog post that a contributor provides that's focused on F-sharp. And so actually tomorrow, well, we're midnight now, but on the 15th of December, I believe that my blog post is due. So I'm trying to wrap that up. In regards to conferences, no, I haven't. The only conference that I did was last year. I was on Automation Guild, which is sponsored by Test Talks, in which I discussed property-based testing. There's a NDC Minnesota I think that's in May that um, I don't plan on speaking at, but I do plan on observing. So I might fly up there and, and just go to the functional programming track seminars, or shall I say talks. And that's pretty much it. So no real call to action besides what I already discussed. And thanks for having me. And then you mentioned the Advent of Code blog, but you've got some blog posts you've got you'll occasionally do live streamings twitter what are the best places for people to follow along and keep updated and watch for what's going on in your world are there any specific places you'd point people to twitter mostly i think i calm down some where a lot of what i post is more focused on programming or sharing articles or videos about programming Besides that, I, I do have a YouTube channel. Occasionally, I interview other developers. My last guest was Scott Vlashin, which was about a week ago. 
in which we discuss this new book. I think it's called Domain Modeling with F Sharp or something to that, something to that extent. But yeah, on Twitter, you can find me on YouTube. Basically, you can just look up Bizmonger. That's my internet name, and you should be able to keep track of me. Besides that, I have a blog. It's bizmonger.wordpress.com, in which recently I've just been posting YouTube videos or embedding YouTube videos in my blog. But also in that blog, I discuss Windows Presentation Foundation, Xamarin, as well as Elm and F-Sharp. So, yeah, thanks. And I'll get all those included in the show notes for people to come back and follow along and keep up to date with what's going on and your progress and your sharing of your learning. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Steve. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Scott, for reaching out and making sure we caught up. It's been interesting to see what you've been up to. I've, I follow you along with Twitter and both the Functional Geekery account and my personal account. So I see you come up here and there between everything else. And so I've seen your updates occasionally, but it's always nice to get back in contact with you and get some more details about what's been going and hear how your progress has been. So thanks for reaching out and I'm sure we'll talk, talk again in the future about further topics and further learnings as you continue on your functional programming learning exploration. So thanks again for being a guest. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.